0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arth Neeti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. We're extremely glad to have Professor Oriana Bandiera with us today. She's currently Sir Anthony Atkinson Professor at the London School of Economics. She has a prolific research career and has won a lot of awards, the recent one being the Jansen Award in 2019 for being the best European economist under the age of 45. She works on labour organizations and how it impacts development. We're extremely glad to have you with us today, Oriana. Thank Thank you for taking our time.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So I'll start with one of your recent papers where you talk about why do people stay poor? And there, the main argument that you give is about giving large benefits, some kind of a big push, to the people to get out of the poverty trap so maybe you can tell us about what this paper
1: is sure so the idea of poverty traps is one of the oldest in economics and it rests on the assumption that there are some hurdles that the poor have to overcome to escape poverty and that these hurdles are fixed they're like large barriers so In the idea of poverty trap, people can be poor because they are born poor. Even though they have the same traits, the same capabilities as anybody else, because they are born in poverty, they can't afford the investments that would allow them to escape poverty. Of course, the alternative explanation is that everybody has the same opportunities, and so the people are poor because they have some traits that keep them in poverty. Uh, It's very hard to test between these two theories because they look the same, that is, the poor stay poor. Uh, now, we happen to be, as it often happens with the research projects, we actually happen to be very lucky because we did an evaluation of a transformative program that NGO BRAC implemented in Bangladesh and the program gave the poorest women in the poorest villages of the poorest district a cow and uh, a training on how to deal with a cow. Now. It so happens that if you look at the distribution of assets in these villages, it's perfectly by model. That is, there is a bunch of people who have nothing and a bunch of people who have a certain amount. And uh, the point of the minimum of the distribution that is where nobody is, is precisely where the program placed uh, the beneficiaries. And so we can see before and after the program whether the beneficiaries escape poverty or fall back into poverty. And effectively, what we see is that the beneficiaries who start with absolutely nothing slide back, and those who have a little to start with escape poverty for good. So these dynamics shows that there is there are two equilibria, so to speak, one with the poverty trap and one without. And a sufficiently large transfer can bring people out of the poverty
0: trap. So what's the level of transfer we are thinking about in this case? We
1: are talking about one year worth of uh, consumption, which in this case, because there are subsistence, is one year worth of income. So it's a very large transfer relative to what they have. And this basically also explains why many programs, such as microfinance, which is about a tenth of the value of the transfer, are not particularly effective because you're so far from the threshold, you're so far from overcoming the barrier that a little transfer can only last, and you know, a little bit to support consumption, it cannot enable you to change occupation and escape the poverty trap.
0: But if you compare it to the other work, like in the past, like Big Push is not a new idea. Like the Millennium Village project, which did something similar. They wanted mm-hmm. to transfer a lot of money to a select set of individuals mm-hmm. and households. But I mean, the results were not that great, at least in that context. Do you think this program is different? or? Uh, We're missing something here.
1: So I think what's important is the level at which we do things. So there are poverty traps which are individual, and in this case that's exactly what BRAC was targeting. Individual poverty traps of women who were stuck in casual jobs, like they were working as maids for the richer households, or uh, as casual labourers in agriculture, and by enabling them to do livestock rearing, they unlocked the single, the individual poverty trap. But of course, that doesn't develop a country, it doesn't develop a whole village, you just solve the individual problem. To develop an entire country, the big push has to be at the industry level, you know? as to infrastructure building and so on. So I think the Millennium Village was exactly in between the two levels. So it wasn't okay. localized enough and it wasn't big enough. Big enough. Yeah.
0: So you probably need, if you're far away from this switching, you probably need to transfer those people even more Absolutely. Assets.
1: Okay. Absolutely. I see.
0: So building on this further, some of the recent work that you have been doing, and I'm citing from one of the reports that you did for IDC, And so it says social assistance in low income countries delivers approximately 14 cents in poverty gap reduction for each USD spent on social assistance programs as compared to 45 cents in high-income countries and somewhere in the middle for other countries. So it's somewhat about targeting in these poor countries. And so based on your research, why do you think are these poor countries so bad at targeting the poorest
1: Well, it's a matter of the structure of employment. When people work for firms, we know exactly how much they earn, and that's why we can extract income tax, and that's how we can give transfers. When you do not work for a firm that you know you don't have the payroll data that go to the tax authorities, we have no idea. So it's just a matter of the structure of labour that feeds back into the into what the state can do.
0: But should we also care about the level? because maybe in the poorest of the countries, almost everyone is poor maybe 80% of the people are poor? So.
1: Of course. But also the government is poor. It's a cycle. It's a poverty trap in itself, right? So if most people are poor, they do not pay taxes, and hence the government doesn't have the money to redistribute. Okay. So I think it's, a, it's another poverty trap. There.
0: So given this work on poverty trap and poverty alleviation, it's a very large literature. People have been working on this topic for uh, five, six, eight decades or forever. 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 I
1: think actually economics started as a study of poverty if you read Adam Smith it's all yep. about that
0: so yeah I mean it has been going on for a very very long period of okay. time so if if you have to summarize the current frontier of research what are the questions that are super pertinent for researchers to answer at this point of time and I guess it also varies depending on the countries you are studying so let's say if you are talking about the poorest of the country what are the big, question that we should be looking
1: at i think the questions i think it's more the focus i think the focus has to be on people because ultimately the wealth of a country is the people in the country so it's how to best enable people to do the best they can given their innate capabilities and how to give a chance to everybody because uh, you know a fair country ends up being a productive country so i think it's the focus on people is particularly important and what motivates people and also, you know, how people relate to each other, how people form organizations, because you do need people to come together to you know exploit the relative, the comparative advantage and form an organization that works.
0: So one of the points you make before making a policy, maybe go and ask the people. Yes. So maybe you can reiterate that point from the context of giving out transfer where people don't want to take those Yes,
1: yes. So that, came, uh, that observation was made because there are a plethora of programmes that uh, try to subsidise small firms, you know, micro-entrepreneurs, try to make micro-entrepreneurs grow. So there's all sorts of programmes like training, grants, giving them an accountant or whatnot. And uh, most of these fail. But most of these fail because most micro entrepreneurs are microentrepreneurs because they have nothing else to do there is no alternative there are no jobs for them most of them would prefer a wage job so microentrepreneurs don't grow because they don't want to grow <laughs> not because they don't know how to that they need us to tell them how to run a business they probably know how to do that but that's not their first choice so if you're doing microentrepreneurship out of subsistence you, you don't want to grow
0: it's not as uh, cool as being an entrepreneur
1: exactly exactly
0: so given that there are these uh, lots of contracts out there or lots of projects that potentially government can run what do you still recommend because the government can talk to 10 economists and all of them are going to give a different answer of course is there some something we can still agree
1: on so of course the answer will be it depends <laughs> So the answer is going to be the same. It's always going to be it depends. What can we agree on? Well, it depends on the state of the economy, right, and on the state of infrastructure. Because I think the most important thing is to enable organizations to form and to enable the market to work in the country. Now, this sounds uh, quite you know liberal, neoliberal market economy. But in the end, the way an economy develops is by allowing trade. So promoting infrastructure, not not necessarily international trade, but trade internally. So uh, promoting, you know, constructing infrastructure is, I think, the first order, first order of importance. Roads and uh, transport. Uh, I see. I think that's that's very important.
0: And if you have to think about it from a formality versus informality perspective, is that also so, something you? Yeah. You... So
1: I think that that's more a symptom of the problem rather than the cause of the problem. I think that once you know firms have incentives to grow. They will grow, and by growing, they will have to register, and so and workers will have to register. So, formality is a consequence of development. I don't see it as a cause of development.
0: So, people who focus on we want to formalize the economy are thinking it from an inverted perspective. I
1: think so, and the same. I mean, I'm going to be controversial here. The same with corruption.
0: Okay, let's let, you know, let, let, let's let's then build on this further. So in india and i'm taking the example from india because i'm from there and i've seen like rollout of some of these programs so in the last uh, 10 years so one is like goods and services tax yeah so the idea was a lot of firms are ev- evading taxes yes uh, the other was related to demonetization taking out some black money out of the economy Yes. i'm not sure if you followed it so yes. since you said you're going to be more controversial here this is like some kind of a forced formalisation of the economy. Yes.
1: Well, you know, it's a bit like it's curing the symptom, not the cause, I think. The same as I was saying with corruption, we have a paper in Pakistan, of all places, where we give more freedom to procurement officers. We give them cash in hand and the price that they pay for the goods that they have to buy actually decreases. Because by giving them cash in hands, we basically we reduce the authority of the monitor and the monitor was getting bribes and so that's how that's how the corruption is actually decreased by giving more autonomy to the people on the field so i think that we have to understand that you know when there is no formal solution to a problem an informal solution will arise and this informal solution often takes the, the form of side payments and the side payments are not official so we count them as bribes and i'm not you know endorsing corruption in any way yeah. but all i'm saying is like if you focus on uh, the reducing corruption in the hope that that will give you development. I don't think it's going to happen.
0: It's greasing the weeds.
1: It's greasing. Yeah. I'm not saying it's good in any way. I'm just saying it's a symptom.
0: It's a symptom. It so the can. fundamental problem is somewhere else. Exactly. Which you probably don't focus on it. Exactly. you Look at these solutions. So another aspect of your work, and you talk about it a lot of times, is that increase in employment leads to growth. Growth does not lead to employment. Although I guess it's kind of a circular. Yeah, exactly. argument. Yeah. But you tend to focus a lot more on generating good jobs in order to pull the economy out of... Uh,
1: yeah, because I've I i know I've always been a microeconomist, in the sense that I cannot think of aggregates without thinking of what makes those aggregates. So I, I think of the people and the jobs that they do and what they produce. And I think that that's where we have to start from.
0: So I, I'm again going to quote from one of your recent works. So uh, this is mainly in context of developing jobs in more poor countries. Mm-hmm. So, you say that with overwhelmingly young populations and inadequate education systems, the training that young workers obtain as they transition into labor force will be pivotal in determining whether we end up with a sea of workers in unskilled informal work, or with a growing share in stable skilled jobs. So, how big do you think is this challenge for still poor? Let's say African countries or Asian countries
1: for Africa is essential because uh, due to the demographic uh, uh, trans- not transition but there is a youth bulge. You know, like the people. I think it's counted that by 2050, one in three new labor market entrants will be in Africa. So we have to equip these countries with the infrastructure that's needed to give skills to this workforce.
0: So this is much more challenging than in some of the advanced economies, where probably the economies is a
1: Yes, and also the advanced economies have the infrastructure already. Although, I mean, one could complain about that too, because they've gone too much the other way. If I think of England, it's very difficult to find an apprenticeship or an internship, you know, like everybody goes to university, which doesn't seem to be a good allocation of resources, because not everybody uh, you know, has the the aptitude to go to university. So training for you know training for skills for professions is been a bit lost.
0: And so you think it's even more important for the countries which are not developed yet for this transition? Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And so the focus should be more on these vocational training.
1: Vocational yeah. training, yes exactly. And higher education, but the the two together is very important. Together. Yeah.
0: But we all struggle doing that. I know. So, is there a way out of that, or what would be the policy recommendation? Because, for example, even in India, like uh, people don't want to go to these schools. In on average, even if they go to these schools, they don't perform probably so well. So, a lot of investment is done in vocational training, but it still sure. hasn't.
1: But that also, I mean, that brings another question, which is the regulation of the schools themselves because the institutes that provide vocational training have to be uh, regulated and certified by the government, otherwise everybody pops up a school and charges a fortune and uh, provides no training. So I think it's important to invest in that sector, invest in schools and vocational training institutes at the same time. They don't necessarily have to be public, but there has to be government overseeing these institutes.
0: And you think there is also some status associated with it? If you go to the university rather than Going to a vocational institute? I guess that's part of the focus of some of your research as well, that there is. people don't care just about money. I
1: know, absolutely, there is. But I think it's you know it's part of the role of society to make sure that everybody's valued for their contribution. So in Denmark, they tell me that uh, you can be a painter and you can be a professor and you can be best friends, you know, not like a painter, like a, an artist, but rather uh, a decorator, you know. Uh, okay. So, decorators and professors, or plumbers and professors are friends, and, uh, and there's no problem with that. Other countries are a lot more segregated. The UK? Pro- the UK is very segregated. No plumber, no plumber friends? No plumbers at all after Brexit, you know, they all went, right. Okay, so, no.
0: uh, but I'll build on this, and, and you may decide not to answer, because I guess you do not work on this like, very closely. All these changes which are driven by AI, do yes. you think this is a threat for this transition, even for developing economies? I know it's a growing field of research, but
1: Yes, no, I, I'm very skeptical of those worries because people were worried about cars. You no, know, people were worried about machines when machines first came out. We can't stop technical progress. We can only take the best advantage that we can out of it. So of course any technology has the potential to be harmful. Even a knife, you know. A knife is essential to do many things, but it can hurt people. So it depends how you use it, how you regulate its use.
0: And you don't think skilling the sea of uh, workers in the emerging economies, poor economies, would be a difficult task to do?
1: I think that is a matter of priorities, right? So if a lot of money is uh, spent, say, in defense, you know, I personally don't see the point of spending money in an army or in a missile system. I don't see what we're going to do with it if there is a war. There is a war. We're all dead. But um, so I personally don't don't see the point. But that's a personal opinion. But there are it's a matter of priorities. I think if you put the people first, there is the money to do it.
0: Okay. So my next question is more about methodology. So you have been doing a lot of field experiments or randomized controlled trials for a very long period of
1: time now. Yeah.
0: And I mean, a general concern which people raise is that how much of the learnings from one of these experiments is transferable? I mean transferable to other contexts, and again, just trying to pick up from one of the speeches, uh, one of the interviews you said, people according to me are people everywhere.
1: Yes, that is true.
0: So probably incentives matter. So put in that context, how much do you think are these studies transferable from one context to another? Should we really care about it? Or
1: So that's a matter of external validity again. Your question is a matter of external validity, it depends which study.
0: We're but economists generally tend to be less sceptical about taking these findings into account, while if you talk to some of the other social science disciplines, yes, they focus much more on context. That context is super important.
1: I think context is super important. Uh, when I say people are people everywhere, I mean that people are motivated by similar concerns. We're motivated about taking care of our you know, the friends and family that we have, and we're motivated by ensuring to have a comfortable life, of course and that our sons and daughters have a comfortable life. That's universal. And of course, we are motivated by uh, being recognised and appreciated by our peers, and that also is universal. But specific interventions, for instance, in a recent paper, we looked at the effect of policies that are meant to bring women into the labour force, so training and other type of programmes of this nature. And we've seen, we have basic, these are very, very common. So they've been run in a variety of settings. So we have basically looked at the effectiveness relative to existing labor force participation. And you know where they work best? They work best where people are already in the labor force. So programs that incentivize women to take part in the labor force only work where women are already taking part in the labor force. Because you need the infrastructure, you need the social... I mean, you cannot act on an individual level when the problem is at the society level. So that's why, maybe one way of putting it is, if the intervention is at the individual level and it's tackling a problem which is at the individual level, that's more likely to generalize than an intervention which is uh, you know, on social norms, for instance. If we are constrained by social norms and I gave you an individual incentives, it's not going to make any difference.
0: So I'll build on this uh, example, because a lot of your work is also related to studying gender gaps, gender pay yeah. gaps. Yeah. And so I'm picking two of the recent papers where you talk about traits of men and women. So the first mm-hmm. one is about giving incentives, high-powered incentives to men and women, and they, they act similarly. Yeah. And the second one is about uh, being overconfident, and you find that probably men and women are equally overconfident. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because they kind of go against the pop culture narrative that you know men are very money minded they also act like super confident uh, i know fake it till you make it so <laughs> so how does your research on these two topics uh, overturn some of these so
1: i think that uh, you know it's uh, much easier to publish a paper where you say well look at this big difference men are from mars women are from venus and that's what people expect but there is a lot of research that doesn't find a difference. And because they don't find a difference, they don't make a big deal about it and not, so, published. and not publish. No, but also if the paper is about, say, giving incentives and they find a difference between men and women, they will mention that. If they don't find a difference, they won't mention that and uh, because they found no difference. And we put somehow much less value on a zero than we do on a positive or a negative. I never understand why that's the case because zero is a number which is as interesting as anything else. But um, So what I did in both cases was to go and look for all the papers where we could see difference in response to incentives or difference in overconfidence. And once you do that, you realize exactly as you said, that men and women are a lot more similar than uh, we make them to be. And there is no reason why they should be so different.
0: Okay. But the question about this gender pay gap still remains... And so, like, if you have to broadly summarize, uh, at least based on the recent work, what, Why, would, what would account for it?
1: The issue is that we, when we talk about labour force participation, we only think about market labour. We never consider home labour as labour. And that, I think, is the beginning of all the problems. Somebody has to do the work at home. Somebody has to run the households, has to take care of the children. And it's this division along gender lines that creates the problem. It's not that women don't work and men work. So they both work. And if you look, for instance, if you come to some of the most rural parts of Africa, men and women are identical. They do the same jobs. They all work in the households with the household plots and and so on. It's only when the market comes in the middle that the the men start going to the market and the women stay at home. And uh, so, I think we have to change the debate. We have to think about rewarding homework as well. And that will allow for a better allocation.
0: But the example that. that you gave here is more related to poor yes. uh, developing economies. But you find like similar kind of pay gaps even existing in more advanced economies, where you have childcare, so probably home…
1: You you don't have like easily accessible childcare pretty much anywhere. I mean, if you make the exception of some Scandinavian countries, even there, it's not, it's not really. And it's not only childcare. I think we focus too much on this like, period where the, the kids need the mother. That's only about four years, five years. Then the kids go to school and the mother could go back to work. And yet we don't have systems that allow women to go back to work. I think this fixation with the childcare period is, uh, is actually part of the problem. Okay. Because it creates all sort of, uh, you know, emotional response. Like, oh, you want to separate mothers and children? No, no, no. I never want to separate mothers and children. Uh, you know, you can bring women back into the labor force after the kids don't do not need. They're not children anymore. Exactly. They're not babies.
0: So. So, the last question for today. It's not related to economics and research, but talking about economics research to the general audience. So oh, you yeah. have been doing this work for a while, uh, what economists really do. Yes. So maybe you can tell us the genesis of this idea and why you started speaking about economic research in the public domain so much.
1: Yes, why did I do that? <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember. I think mostly because uh, I, I didn't like, the, well, I didn't like, I thought it was problematic the way the press was depicting economics. This was around, uh-huh, it was around the economic crisis you know, the financial crisis of 2008, where economists were, you know, the most hated figure after real estate agents because uh, because economists fail to predict the financial crisis. But it's not the job of economists to predict anything, you know, like doctors can tell you that if you eat fries every day of your life, you have a higher chance of having a heart attack than somebody who eats lettuce every day of their life. But they're not going to tell you the day where you're going to have the heart attack, not even the month, not even the year. So why do we expect economists to, to be able to predict with certainty the date at which the financial system will collapse? Many economists had warned that it was unstable, but nobody can predict when and how. And so from there, I started realizing how the general public perception of economics has got nothing to do with economics really is, And that has two effects. One is that it distorts the type of people that select into economics. For instance, the gender imbalance in economics is huge. Most women that I know stumbled into economics by mistake. I wanted to philosophy and I ended up in economics. Um, So that's one problem. But the more severe problem is that if you don't take economics seriously, policymakers are not accountable because economists are the ones who have the data who can evaluate the effect of policies? Who can help policymakers accountable? If we discredit economists as you know a cabal of uh, poor astrologers, then we don't have anybody left to do the you know the evidence based accounting. So, but just to push back
0: a little bit on this, I, I I do understand that we are not perfect no, no. astrologers. None of us are. But do you think like some of this reputation is because we don't go out, reach out and speak so often about our research to the general audience, building a more easier access to economics, because a lot of times people find it very difficult to understand what economists are talking about. So some part of the blame also lies with the economy.
1: Oh, entirely. I think entirely. That's why I thought I cannot keep complaining about this unless I do something about it. And that's why I gave the Royal Economic Society lecture when they invited me. Instead of presenting my own research, like I could have done easily, I put together this lecture, like trying to explain what economics is about. And now we have several initiatives in the UK where we send our students to secondary schools to tell the kids what economics is about, because economics is not taught in school. So,
0: so but just building on that. So I, I know I, I teach to the MBA class at the ISP and last class, I always end up saying, okay, X can happen, Y can happen. And some of the students say, if everything can happen, why are we even learning about it? Because relative to some of the other disciplines, it's not always one answer that you can give. And and I'm just picking up again, one of your quotes, you said, "Ah, I cannot write airport books because you don't have such a unidimensional answer to any of the problems.
1: I would deeply distrust any discipline that gives you one answer fits all.
0: So, no airport level MOOC coming from?
1: I'm I'm an academic, you know, my daily bread is doubt, so it's always asking questions. But I don't think that saying that this can happen and that can happen is a bad thing, unless you don't say the conditions under which those can happen. Of course, everything can happen. The benefit of economic modelling and economic data is to tell you under which condition, something happens or something doesn't happen and that's why it's useful i think
0: it was great talking to you likewise thank you so much and i wish you very good luck with this initiative thank you